This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. Thank you so much for listening to us this week. My name is Lindsay Gibbs. I am the author of the Power Plays newsletter. And after quite a week, I am so happy to be here with two of my co-hosts, Dr. Amir Rose Davis, Assistant Professor of History and African American Studies at Penn State. Hi, Amira. Hey. (laughs) And Dr. Brenda Elsie, Associate Professor of History at Hofstra, who I believe is in Detroit right now. Hey, Bren. Hi. (laughs) So first of all, our usual thank you to our patrons. We are taking steps towards adding some people to our team and could not be more excited. And the only way that is possible is because of the support from our patrons. If you go to patreon.com slash burn it all down for as little as $2 a month, you can get extra benefits, listen to extra segments, be part of our Patreon community and help support this independent venture that we want to keep going even In the, I believe, zaniest is one word for it of times in this world. (laughs) Um, I don't know quite how else to put it. But in today's episode, we're going to talk about, obviously, I mean, we're going to, we talked about it last week, but uh, it's a whole new world this week. We're going to talk about the coronavirus and what it is doing to the sports world which is a lot. <laughs> then we're going to talk about U.S. Soccer Federation and the its legal battles with the U.S. Women's National Team. And that has led to former President Carlos Cordero resigning this week. Then Shireen chats with Talia Kaufman, the programs director, and Zainab Hosani, the general manager of Skatistan, an award-winning organization that got its start in Afghanistan and uses skateboarding as a tool to empower kids, keep girls in school, and amplify the sport globally. But first, I just wanted to do a check-in with you two, Amira and Brenda. I know it just really does feel like a, a little bit different of a world than it did at this point last week. So, I just want to check in. How has the the coronavirus kind of impacted your lives? How are you and your kids doing? Um, Brenda, I know you're in Detroit now. How are things? (laughs) Shitty. (laughs) It's like, you know, I still, I'm supposed to change all of my courses to online now for the rest of the semester. I have four courses that I teach and I think I have a hundred students right now and I'm sad I won't get to see them. And I'm doing that whole sort of migrating of a face-to-face now abruptly onto online learning 
when my my girl's school is canceled for at least two weeks. So it's like, you know, stay at stay at home mom plus like extra professoring. And of course, I know this is not the worst. There are people who are really, really suffering from this. And I'm very sad. And I'm happy to quarantine and keep everybody safe. But it is like not the easiest. No, it doesn't sound easy at all. (laughs) And there's no sports. (laughs) Yeah, there's no sports. We will get to that. Amira, how are you? Yeah. Our spring break was last week and the population of State College has emptied out as 50,000 undergrads and multiple families from the community have spread all over the world during our spring break this last week. And so now the university is going remote until April, but also my kids' schools are closed until that time as well. And really what we're doing is assessing the what's going to happen as everybody starts dumping back into the town and seeing what the health of the entire community looks like as people are coming back from all around the world into a tiny little space. Personally, for me, this was the month I was finishing my book manuscript and my kids have already been home for 10 days. Over the course of March, they'll have gone to school for five days and I just productivity is not just that productivity has gone out the window, but it's that even in times of a global pandemic, when there's a great disruption of your life, we're so wedded to productivity by necessity, right? Like there's, like Brenda said, there's so many people who are really affected by this in terms of losing pay and losing jobs and not having health insurance. But there's a certain precarity in the distance for people like me who are untenured, where it's like, we can't stop writing because the tenure clock hasn't stopped. And so it's not an immediate type of precarity, but it's like, do I want to have my job in a few years when I need to get my book out? So even in this moment where the last thing I want to do is focus and write, I don't know how to not. So that's like where I'm at with that. Yeah, I am really feeling you there. In one hand, I'm incredibly lucky right now because I, and we'll talk about this a little later, you know, when that, when Think Progress closed, you know, one of my top options was to go full-time freelance because I know that world really well. And had I gone that route, I would be without any income over the next who knows how long. Thankfully for power plays, you know, I have a different structure now. But yeah, it's, you know, it doesn't stop at all. There's no downtime for me during during this. The productive, the, you know, the newsletters and the work needs to keep coming. I'm trying to um, help the community. Last week, you know, my grandfather passed away and I was back and forth from North Carolina. And it really did seem like every two days when I came went from North Carolina to DC, like it was a whole different, like, you know, atmosphere, like things were just changing at such a rapid speed. And it was very weird to be going through that personal stuff while, you know, this global pandemic Mm -hmm. was spreading. So it's just been it's been a very strange time. I'm back in DC. And I mean, for me, like I said, I'm very lucky. But at the same time, it is a shift. Like I have to figure out what does three times a week sports newsletter look like in the world of no sports. <laughs> so, right. you know, it's just, it's an adjustment. And I think, you know, all of us can be luck, be grateful that we're not in worse, you know, worse positions and thankful for those. But I think still acknowledge that this is a big change in all of our lives. 
But we still have a show to do. And this is the type of normalcy that I love (laughs) is talking with you all. And (laughs) the good thing is our show has been quarantine proof since the beginning because (laughs) we've always done this completely online. So we're kind of ahead of the curve. (laughs) Oh, wait. I did not announce. I assume that people know this, but the USC show has unfortunately been canceled. Postponed. 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 Sorry. Canceled for this month. So you will not be seeing us on April 1st, but it will be postponed to the fall and we will keep you up to date on when that is happening. And we cannot wait to make it to LA. All right. Well, uh, speaking of the coronavirus's impact on our personal lives and how much has changed this week, it is also a different sports situation from last week when we talked about the coronavirus here. Amira. I think there was one day where a lot of stuff happened. Maybe take us through Wednesday. Yeah. So when we left you with this conversation last week, we were what seems quite benignly now thinking about um, if March Madness would go on or go on without fans. Brenda gave us a great history of the 1918 flu pandemic and we were kind of wondering what March Madness would look like without any fans. That was the bulk of our discussion. That that episode dropped on Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> and then things happened in like 24 hours between Tuesday night and Thursday morning, just mayhem. So first off the bat, yes, the NCAA said there was going to be no fans at March Madness, what we had been talking about, what we had been predicting in the episode. They went ahead and said that on Tuesday, they are going to play games without fans. Other things kind of went on as people cling, tried to cling to normalcy. For instance, in Greece, the IOC lit the damn Olympic torch. <laughs> like, I don't know. But stateside, the U.S. <laughs> Olympic Committee and Para Committee canceled its media summit that featured over 100 prospective Olympians and Paralympians. Other leagues, such as the NHL, the M- MLB, the NBA, the MLS, took steps, again, baby steps, to try to stay safe, including barring locker room access, making individual players um, available to media in a kind of very kind of sanitized way. We saw these kind of little steps happening to try to protect the leagues that leagues kind of thought this these were sufficient mem- steps, which at the time felt like significant steps. So you had instances like Rudy Gobert of the Utah Jazz, who even kind of mocked these efforts. Like, there's not much we can do more than what we're already doing. Like, we're, we're not going to stop high-fiving people. He actually left the press conference touching all the mics to ingest remember that. So (laughs) as Tuesday rolled around, people were still clinging to normalcy. Even though the Ivy League went forward with canceling its participation in this postseason basketball tournaments, which was widely debated and almost condemned at that time, it was seen as an overreaction. But by Wednesday, the Ivy League had gone a step forward and canceled all spring sports. The NCAA had said no fans. The NBA's had games scheduled, but again was proceeding with no fans. And so on Wednesday morning, it felt like this was so severe already. There was no fans in attendance. Games were being played. The Ivy League seemed to be way, (laughs) way overreacting. 
But right before tip-off of the OKC and Utah Jazz game, a PA announcer said it was postponed. Soon it was announced that that very Gobert had tested positive for COVID-19. Swiftly, the NBA canceled games and set in motion essentially endless announcements from the ATP, from MLS, from NHL, from MLB, from the WTA. The NCAA went forward and canceled all of March Madness, the PGA Tour. And by Friday, the Masters and the Boston Marathon had also followed suit. So here we are. We don't have sports. Since then, two other NBA players have tested positive, including Donovan Mitchell, a teammate of Rudy Gobert on the Utah Jazz, and also um, the person he was playing against on the Detroit Pistons, who was defending him the whole game, has tested positive. If you think about all of the teams that the Utah Jazz played in this period of time and then all the teams that they played, you can see why the NBA very quickly moved to say we need to halt everything. I think it's also important to note here that the Utah Jazz somehow found 58 tests to give to its team after Rudy tested positive, which represented almost 60% of all testing capabilities in the state of (laughs) Oklahoma at the time. And we're in a testing shortage. And so the fact that professional teams have been able to access these tests is also something that maybe we should talk about. But here we are. Sports have gone silent. We never really have seen this before. To this degree, certainly not at all. So what do we talk about? What do we watch? What does this reveal about our dependency on sports? But also, in a very real real way, it took this halt from the sports world to really, I think, capture the larger attention of society to say, no, this is serious and this is happening. In the words of Cardi Bree, shit is getting real. Yeah, so real. (laughs) Brenda, what do we do? do without sports? Have you begun to kind of figure out how that is impacting your life? Is it sunk in? It's terrible. I'm actually I'm actually strategizing what old sports events that I should watch and make my kids watch. <laughs> it's like, if it's not happening, like we should go watch like my kids have never seen Rumble in the Jungle, you know, Ali and Foreman and Zaire like like this. So like my brain goes right to like, how else can I regulate my life? <laughs> I'll go to old sports. So, I mean, I think it really shines a light on how the schedule of sports really is comforting for me and a lot of people. It's just like it sort of regulates time. And, you know, people are really critical of this, sociologists or historians that say, well, this is about kind of the, you know, imposition of capitalists to make you follow a particular schedule. And that might be, but I experience it as incredibly comforting (laughs) my exploitation in this sense. So, yeah, I mean, for me, it's really disconcerting. The thing Amira listed all of these um, cancellations. The one that I have never seen, and I'm sure is without precedent, is the qualifiers for the 2022 World Cup in Qatar. And that is just, I mean, that's just bonkers for me. I, I, I mean, of course, it's obvious it needs to happen. It just, for me, it really like set in that cancellation because... Um, they play many times without fans. And I assumed that that's what they would do. And then it became clear that the players who are coming from Europe were going to have to be quarantined. So there's, 
you know, three players at least from Juventus that play for Brazil that were going to have to come and would miss the qualifiers. And then you realize both the global nature of sport and how connected we are and yet still how vulnerable. So it's it's been really fascinating and for me, disconcerting. Yeah, I think we're so used to, I mean, at least kind of during my lifetime, if whenever there is a huge global, you know, event or really big news thing, sports are kind of the thread that ties us together during those times, you know? I mean, we we know there is no separating sports and politics, but it does at times kind of bring society together. So the fact that we're kind of all going through this and without sports you know, to me, it's a, it's a hard adjustment. But there's also the fact that this economically is having a huge impact. Amira? Yes, certainly. And, and, and to your point, Linz, you know, this is FDR urging baseball to go on with, with World War II. This is the Patriots playing, you know, on national TV after 9-11, right? And I think to your point is even in those moments, even in all of our sporting moments, we lose sight of all of the more precarious and visible labors that it takes to make the machine of sports still run. And one of the things that's happening in this moment is that we're seeing that those vulnerable populations are in very, very um, fragile situation. So um, arena workers who work concessions or do janitorial um, work for these kind of big stadiums, that has been a point where you've seen a lot of people, not enough um, in terms of the ownership side, step up and say, we'll donate money to keep that going. Like people like Zion Williams and, and Kevin Love. And like the fact that a 19 year old has the wherewithal to say, this is the money that I'm donating to make sure that arena workers are taken care of. And not every owner, so there's been owners, certainly, like I never thought I would praise Mark Cuban, but here we are, who have been on the front lines of making sure, I know exactly, who have been on the front lines of making sure that people are taken care of. But there's been too many owners who have been absolutely content to sit back and watch athletes who are not billionaires like them, they are sitting back and letting them do this, these acts of goodwill. But I think that it also reveals not just arena workers, right? But Lindsay, I mean, we're talking, you mentioned freelancers. What are, what does it look like in in your opinion for people who cover sports I mean, we all talk about ESPN, like, what are they going to show? They'll be fine. But what can you talk to us about what this, how this might unpack the other kind of labor force in sports, which is the media? Yeah, I mean, I'm terrified. Like, I know it sounds a little bit trivial, but I mean, there's so many people who make their living covering sporting events. Like I said, if I was freelance right now, I would have been planning all of my income to be coming from probably Indian Wells, the tennis tournament, and then March Mat, you know, the women's March Madness tournament, you know, and I would have had all these contracts lined up and then they would have just all been gone immediately, you know, the first things to go. And I mean, I certainly don't, you know, there are no billionaire owners stepping in to support the media, period, you know, I mean, there aren't enough supporting the arena workers, but there's no infrastructure, right? There's it's it, the industry is already failing. So I'm afraid, first of all, that we're going to start to see more layoffs from 
places like ESPN or the Sports Illustrated's or, you know, other sporting websites. So I'm afraid that people who do have jobs are going to lose them because these sports sites are going to start losing profit and they're all they all have to answer to shareholders. So, you know, it's not like people are going to be generous. And I don't know what freelancers are going to do. And I'm I'm very scared for them. And I, I want to urge if you're an editor listening, and you had had a travel budget set aside for your salaried employees this month, instead, find ways to get that to freelancers, you know, if you in any way can keep people we need people to be covering sports, like, because it does matter, you know, we needed people bear the night uh, that Rudy Gobert and all that stuff was happening, right? We needed reporters to be figuring that out. And I'm, I'm just scared. I'm scared for my industry. And I'm scared for the most vulnerable people freelancers. And I'm scared that at the end of this, there's this industry is going to be even more decimated than it already has been. And we know that will disproportionately impact women's sports. <laughs> And I don't know, it sounds silly, but I, and it doesn't sound silly. It just, it's my industry and I'm, I'm scared for it. And I'm scared for, of course, many others. One thing though, is that not 100% of sports are shut down. It seems like that, but Amira, is there one that's keeping going? <laughs> yes, <laughs> that would be <laughs> UFC. <laughs> okay. uh, we're just is UFC. So Dana White, as everybody else was canceling, Dana White said, "Oh, he's received advice straight from the president and the vice president over the escalating outbreak." And he said, "Oh, Trump and Mike Pence said, be cautious, be careful, but live your life." Mm-hmm. And he said mm-hmm. he will continue to run UFC events. Since- <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. So, you know, one of the things that has happened is slowly he's kind of budged on this. So there are UFC events that will be held behind closed doors. But they had like eight events. And he basically was like, we're going forward. And the issue that they're facing is that a lot of the places where they're holding the events have now imposed, you know, rules about public gatherings and how many people are going to be there. So (laughs) for instance, UFC London, Dana White's like, it's going to proceed as planned. And we're working with the government there (laughs) to try to make sure it's moving forward. And it's not funny, but it's just like, what are you doing? So for instance, in Columbus, when the governor issued a ban on public events over 100 people, Dana White's response was not to say, maybe we should postpone the event, but to move it to Vegas so they are on their own campus and they can control having the event or not. So, you know, people are taking precautions. And I look back to when the Ivy League was kind of being lambasted by overreacting. And now I feel like we've swung in this way where we're like, people are underreacting. And it's like your friendship with this administration is not going to save you. They're incompetent. Don't do that. Stop putting other people at risk. I like literally, it makes me so irritated. I don't even know what to say other than like, this is ridiculous. Somehow... When the NCAA is making more moral decisions than you are, right? you know you have reached like rock bottom of the the capitalism right. scale, <laughs> right. like the capitalism immor- immorality scale. So is it like 
obviously it's the right move to cancel all these things, but am I alone? And I mean, just feeling bad for these seniors and really hating this. I don't think that it's bad to feel sorry for seniors at all. I mean, I feel terrible for the students that don't get to go through commencement and graduation, much less, you know, having their dreams sort of shattered. Hofstra had just made the NCAA tournament for the first time in like 20 years. <laughs> and I feel terrible for for all the athletes that have worked so hard. I also feel that for all students right now. Yeah, certainly. I would have to, you know, agree with that. I think so I saw a tweet somewhere that said the class of 2020 started college in the fall with the 2016 election and ended it with this. And I think anytime you have dreams or visions of how something's going to go and it's disrupted, it's really hard. And I can't imagine, you know, for these seniors who are both athletes and non-athletes, you know, both in high school who are looking at the world that they're about to go into and in the collegiate level, you know, who are missing their senior days and who aren't getting their proms. And, you know, my kid's a theater kid and the kids who have worked all fall and winter for musicals that now won't go on. Um, I saw one tweet where they live streamed a musical to an empty audience where people could watch. But Laura Benanti made a, a thread and said, if your high school musical has been canceled, sing for me, I'll be your audience. So I think that I'm feeling that for, for everybody, like Brenda said, and certainly, of course, for the athletes we've been following, like Sabrina, who've had a complete disruption to what should have been kind of her crowning year. Yeah. And I just really quickly, do you too, as, as mothers have more insight to how this is impacting the youth level and kids sports and kind of what the impact that will have? Bren? Well, the most of the seasons will be postponed and, you know, and, and that's incredibly disruptive. And it's also just but it's part of just belonging to the world. And, you know, there, I feel I feel for everybody. And maybe this will be a moment of compassion. And in some sense, I mean, I think it gives me a measure of like a reality check in terms of like the idea that sports is like this important. It's like, OK, but everything's this important right now. Yeah, I think if anything, it's very easy to feel divided these days, but this is a very real reminder that we are all citizens and very much all in this together uh, when it comes to a public health emergency. It does not, it, it takes everyone doing their part. All right, next we have Shireen's interview about Skatistan. Hello, flamethrowers. This is Shireen. Today, we have two very, very, very special and important guests on the show with us. I'd like to introduce Talia Kaufman. She is the program director for Skatistan, and she's coming to us from Berlin. And I would also like to introduce Zainab Husseini, who is the general manager of the program in Mazar i Sharif in Afghanistan. Hello to both of you. Hi. Hello. I'll begin with you, Zainab. Can you tell me how long you've been with the program and what you do in your role as general manager? Um, I've started working with uh, Skatis on, on 2013, and now uh, 
I'm working as a general manager and leading a group of 23 persons who are teaching children uh, in skateboarding and education. That's wonderful. And Talia, the program since 2012, what exactly do you do? Um, My job seems to be constantly shifting, but Mm -hmm. I work with the local teams on program design. I also work somewhat on our long-term strategy with the other directors, uh, and I have a team of um, programs managers both in Berlin and and then programs officers at the schools uh, who all collaborate together on um, on making sure that we're delivering really great programs. So setting goals for women's inclusion or girls' inclusion, setting goals for how many disabled students we want participating in the program, and making strategies together on how to achieve those goals. And we're also responsible in the program's side for reporting to our donors on our successes and how we're spending our funds. So, uh, Talia, is Skate Istan uh, exclusively, does it run on donors? Like, for example, our podcast runs exclusively by Patreon, by our generous listeners. Um, is it the same for Skate Istan, or do you get grants internationally or, you know, from different places? Our donor, individual donor base is increasing, but it's not exclusively the source of our our funds. Um, we also do get some foundation grants and grants from uh, local embassies. So we, we do try to diversify where, where we're doing our fundraising, but we are trying to always grow our individual donor base because it's uh, that untied funding that we can really work with uh, flexibly. So we have a program that's called the Citizens of Skatistan, and that's our monthly donor program. So anyone can sign up at skatistan.org to become a citizen. Um, Zainab, can you tell us a little bit about the programs themselves and maybe if you could explain why skateboarding has become such a hit and, you know, what that means for the girls and the communities that they're from? Skatistan programs includes uh, mainly Skate and Create, a back-to-school program, a youth okay. leadership program, and dropping in program. Mm-hmm. And uh, skateboarding is the largest sport in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. and it's quite new sport. I can say Skatistan uh, is providing all these programs for free, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, it has a very safe space for children, especially mm-hmm. for girls. Um, there, there are many. Um, private sports clubs mm-hmm. but uh, most of the families in Afghanistan they don't allow the girls to uh, participate or go outside outside of their home to take part in any uh, kind of sports of course they do but skater son is covering a huge number of uh, students boys and girls and it's all because of the free transport uh, free programs, and uh, most important thing, a safe space. 
Talia, who came up with this idea? Can you, let's back this up just a little bit. This sounds really very well crafted and well thought out. And from what Zainab is explaining, the programs are tailored to be very cognizant that, you know, there should be spaces specifically for girls and for boys, because that would be culturally appropriate. Who, who put this together? So there was a skateboarder, is a skateboarder named Oliver Perkovich, and he did found the project back in 2008. Um, Mm -hmm. He was in Afghanistan in Kabul with his girlfriend at the time. And Mm -hmm. as a skateboarder, he had brought a few boards with him and he was skateboarding in the streets as skateboarders do. And there are lots of unsupervised children who are very vulnerable, very at risk of all kinds of negative outcomes in their lives because they're in the streets and they're poor and they're trying to sell things and talking to strangers. And so these children were coming up to him and they were very curious about his skateboard. Uh, mm-hmm. And from there, he decided to use a, a disused water fountain that was in a park and make that a sort of safe space for skateboarding outside. And there was so much interest um, that the the sessions really took off and he, he had some older Afghans that were young adults helping him with the sessions. And uh, he noticed that the, the girls stopped participating by a certain age. After girls hit puberty, they would stop attending really and they'd become, they'd just sort of watch or just not be seen anymore. Um, mm-hmm. And he found out that what they needed was a private space and girls only classes and female leaders. Uh, and so he listened to the kids and, and worked really hard to, to get some land and some small donations at first and get that space in Kabul. So the model came from there and then it was replicated in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, and then in Mazar and Johannesburg. We have about 2,500 students worldwide, but on a weekly basis, we're having attendance of almost 3,000 participations. So we, sorry, that was a bit of a mistake. Maybe I should count back and explain what that means. So we have about close to 3,000 attendances a week across our school. So some of those are children coming more than once in a week for different activities. And we're reaching 48, 49% girls participation. But over half of our registered students are girls. Zainab, do any of the participants end up coming back and working for the program or volunteering with the program? For now, most of the employees who are working at Skatestan, mm-hmm. uh, I mean in Kabul and Mazar Sharif, were mm-hmm. our former students. They become our volunteers. They started as a youth leader, then become a volunteer and after learning skate stone skills, they become an employee. And we do have an alumni program uh, started from beginning of 2020, which bring all our former students together. And we do have some uh, plans for them to come to skate stone and uh, start a new program. Sure. What age do you have mm-hmm. the skaters join? Mm-hmm. Students from age of five to five. seventeen, yeah, <laughs> five, yes, uh, they can. So join. they're little; they're like little babies on skateboards. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, until and, seventeen, 
until 17. And other than helmets and pads, the participants can wear what they want, right? They don't have to wear, um, cause I see these beautiful photos of the girls wearing, you know, their, their traditional clothing and it's wonderful. And that, does that help? You think they don't have to wear a kit or a Jersey. Do you think that helps? We don't have any limitation about the students' clothes. They can wear long dresses. They can come with a school uniform. But we, we do encourage them to be in hijab because yes. to not having hijab will somehow limit them. Because Afghanistan is experiencing a very new democracy. And uh, we do have a very long way ahead to be accepted as a human. So Mm -hmm. uh, we don't have choice to select our clothes. We cannot wear as a Western woman. If we try, if our students try to wear what they want, it will Mm -hmm. limit them and it will it will limit them to improve. So we do prefer, even the people, that the girls themselves prefer to be in hijab or wearing okay. long dresses. One of the key things, I started learning about Skatasan in 2012. And before that, I think, and one of the things I really appreciated about this program is that it wasn't directives given from people from the outside, but a lot of the cues culturally and socially were taken from Afghans themselves. And I think this is really important in development work anywhere, particularly in sport, where you can get what's sort of known as white savior is not what's known, but what is essentially white saviorism from coming outside into these places. And Skatasan doesn't have this, but you really look to those on the ground in those places to contribute to the program. And that, I'm assuming that was intentional, Talia. Yeah, that's definitely a risk working in international development. It's something to be really aware of. And it's, we've, we've also made a shift away from having foreign staff embedded in the skate schools. So key, some key roles at the schools in the past were held by international staff. And over time, there's been a handover and more trust built up to and better processes to manage everything collaboratively and do it effectively from a, a remote-based um, office. That Skatistan has was widely recognized in the form of an Oscar award for a documentary film. Can you congratulations to both, first of all, and the program on being the subject of an award, Academy Award-winning feature. So the, the, the next question, Talia, is about that. How did that come to be? And uh, when did that the filming of that uh, that documentary start? The initial scoping for the documentary started in 2016. There was, there was one visit that year, I believe. And then the filming happened, I think, over the course of two or three very short trips to Afghanistan. So somebody, so uh, the director of a short doc that had been made about Skatistan, his name is Orlando. He has become really successful in recent years and actually won an Academy Award for his documentary about um, poaching of mountain gorillas called Virunga in 2014. So he he was interested to do another film with us and uh, he's working with Green Media and I think they were contracted through A&E. And so it all came together that way. That's amazing. I mean, what a, 
uh, what tremendous publicity as well and you know an op- opportunity to amplify um has that helped but you know people to know about your program oh definitely it's uh, given us exposure on a, a different scale and there's been a big uptick in citizens and media pieces and just uh, interest in general social media following all the all the good types of support that we get <laughs> so yes it's been extremely noticeable I, you know visits to the website everything's gone up since that since uh, february 9th that's wonderful and zainab do you have now people have people in afghanistan heard about this and and, and the win of the film and have they paid attention of course, um, uh, we do have a famous uh, TV in Afghanistan called Tulu TV, and okay. um, it was yeah, it was uh, breaking news on Tulu TV when we uh, got the Bifta and Oscar, and uh, after that night, everyone were very happy in Afghanistan overall, and they were posting. Uh, that escaped the sun. They, before that, it, I've, a few people in Afghanistan they didn't know about the escape sun programs, and after that, the people were proud, and uh, even my friends, the people in Mazar, they were talking about Oscar and uh, um, <laughs> yeah, encouraging students and. Uh, uh, telling us we are proud that uh, one of the Afghanistan's organization got the Oscar award, mm-hmm. and it was it was amazing. And I, I didn't see any negative thoughts about skate stone programs after that. No, that's wonderful. And has there been Zainab in in the past? Um, this is my last question. Has there been pushback? from society uh, or criticism of the program in Afghanistan? Of course, uh, to be honest, as most of the sport organizations, some of the people in community are disagree with uh, girls in sport, and they are trying to say sport is not good for the girls and uh, forbidding girls from sport and uh, making rumors propagandas, making propagandas, but um, there is uh, always a way to convince them, to speaking them, uh, speak with them. And uh, uh, the only way that we are trying to involve the community at Skatistan is inviting them uh, and uh, showing the programs, showing the classrooms, and uh, teaching the Islamic subjects mm-hmm. at Skate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And I think that's good to do something from a holistic perspective and do a curriculum that suits where you are. I mean, I, you know, I'm very, I think that's one of the things that I appreciate very much about the program, that there was a lot of thought put into it. And Zainab, do any of this, the students um, come up to you with their own suggestions of what they want or you know, they're just. Did they have suggestions on what they love, and did they? What's the feedback from the skaters themselves? Mm-hmm. Uh, we are always open for students, and we are asking about their suggestions before each curriculum. Um, uh, we are asking students that what do you want to learn next at Skate Stone? 
and mm-hmm. we are collecting their ideas. Most of them are asking about the lessons that they mm-hmm. are not learning at public schools. Or mm-hmm. sometimes they are uh, asking about the lessons that they don't have their specific materials and they, they are sure that we can provide those materials to learn uh, new skills at Skatestan. That's amazing. I want to uh, ask, where can Talia, our listeners, find Skatestan and find the work you do and how can they support the organization? So anyone who's keen to support us can find us at skatestan.org. So it's S-K-A-T-E-I-S-T-A-N. And on Instagram, we're at Skatestan. On Twitter, we're at Skatestan. And it's great if people become citizens. So to become a citizen, you sign up to be a monthly donor of any amount. And it's that consistent uh, commitment that really helps us. The untied funding is extremely meaningful for such an innovative and creative program and the type of work that we're trying to do locally. So yeah, that's very appreciated. And if people become citizens, they get special exclusive newsletters from the schools. So yes, please uh, give us a follow and check it out. I just will have you know, Zainab and Talia, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. But one of my bucket lists is actually to come and visit one of your schools. (laughs) Wow, that would be amazing. I hope you can. Yeah, it really is. I've just, I've been in such awe. I cannot skate. Maybe Zainab, one of the students can help me learn how to skate or the inside. I have no idea. (laughs) But I'm just in such awe of the wondrous work you do and how sport can really be a a tool of empowerment and a connector of people. So, you know, lots of love and respect from everybody at Burn It All Down. And thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you. Thanks so much. All right. Not many other sports stories were going on this week besides the coronavirus cancellations, but U.S. soccer sexism still managed to make headlines, which is a... Talk about uh, talk about breaking through. Talk about commitment to the cause. <laughs> Brenda, what happened this week? <laughs> so it all sort of it all sort of came to the fore on March seventh when U.S. Soccer Federation president, then President Carlos Cordero, wrote a letter. This was on the night before International Women's Day, publicly updating people on the status of negotiations with the U.S. Women's National Team. And he hinted at some of the arguments we would see later in the legal filings. And in it, it was it's like a very strange bungled letter where he already starts to like blame the the sort of women themselves in the negotiations. And then he also shifts blame to FIFA in that letter. So it was sort of a foreshadowing of what we saw on March 10th when the court filings were released. And thanks to friend of the show, Meg Linehan at The Athletic for staying up all night (laughs) and posting and screenshotting those documents. And they were just simply shocking, you know, arguing that women scientifically had less ability than their male counterparts, that they shouldered less responsibility, that they had less possibility for making vast sums of money from prize winnings. And I think it was really fascinating because a lot of what we're used to is U.S. Soccer Federation leaning on marketing 
and the idea of markets and sports markets being different and that being the rationale. And I think in the society we live in, that's become much more accepted as an argument as not being um, sexist, even though we know it is, but in fact, being more um, palatable than patent misogyny. And what was revealed in those court filings is that the legal team and Carlos Cordero had no problem making just, you know, blatantly sexist arguments. So on March 12th, the so over the, the you know, subsequent days, there was a lot of backlash about this by national team players. And in the midst of that, the U.S. women's team just had like a banging performance. <laughs> and so it was sort of uh, the most mishandled thing in quite a while, maybe akin to Trump and the coronavirus. <laughs> and then on March 12th, Carlos Cordero resigned to be replaced by the vice president and former player, Cindy Parlocone, who has taken over. So it's been a real wild ride. And one I think that many of us are just so surprised about in terms of how how U.S. Soccer Federation just didn't recognize the goodwill that this team has generated and just miscalculated how angry people would be at these sorts of arguments. Yeah, it's a uh, it takes a lot of gall to trash the goodwill of a World Cup championship team in such a spectacular way. Like it, a time when uh, the federation should be building on that momentum. Instead, instead, U.S. Soccer tried to downplay it and fight against it, which is so cool. <laughs> Amir, how are you <laughs> feeling? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I personally, as Brenda alluded to, the to have like you couldn't script this better to have these asinine arguments laid out and then have Megan Rapino and Kristen Press have beautiful beautiful goals that <laughs> were you know high degree of difficulty just amazing amazing shots as a, a kind of in person ready meme for people to say, oh, if only they had skills in a kind of sardonic way to poke back at the USSF, you know, so there's that. But of course, now we're, we're down the week. And it was so on the nose that all of these sponsors, it made it very easy for people to get behind the women's national team. You know, the thing that I was watching was you know, of course the players protest, they turn their shirts inside out. You can't see the crest, but you see the four stars, hashtag four stars only, um, immediately made that a shirt from their players association that I definitely bought as soon as I saw Jess post the link. Um, because, you know, I don't even want to wear, you know, Americana stuff. So this was like perfect ideal for me <laughs> anyways. But, <laughs> but you also had the corporate sponsors, Again, this is fodder for them. This this is right up the alleyway of people like Volkswagen who have gone all in corporately behind equal play measures, et cetera, et cetera. And their their version of woke branding is really for gender equity. It's a no-brainer that they were forcefully condemning that, you know, but it wasn't just them. I think one of the more curious tweets that came out was from now President Cindy Parlo Cohn, who tweeted 
Quote, I am hurt and saddened by the brief USSF filed. This issue means so much to me, but more broadly to all men and women, and more importantly to little girls and boys who are our future. I disavow the troubling statements and will continue to work to forge a better path forward. And it's just like things that make you go, hmm. Because... Boom, indeed. Like, that's your legal team, homie. Like, you're, you're vice president. <laughs> and so it's it was this weird moment where I felt like almost Scar- Carlos's resignation, which was really because of the corporate response. His lukewarm apology was because of the corporate response. But I think largely his resignation and himself has been really scapegoating the entire federation that includes the now president who was tweeting things like they were separate from the kind of legal apparatus putting forth these arguments. And what's remarkable to me is that we've been saying for us, Meg, like all the people who are paying attention, that their entire legal argument was grounded in sexism. And here you go. They're just saying the quiet part out loud. And now all these other people in position of power want to act shocked by it. It was here all along. So that's kind of where I am with it. Yeah, this is nothing new. I mean, if nothing else, weeks ago, there were leaks, right? Or not leaks, but depositions came out where it was very clear. I mean, I wrote about it in Power Plays that this was their legal strategy. And let's just take a minute to just note how scary it is. I talked about this a little bit a couple weeks ago on Dave Zirin's podcast, Edge of Sports, where I just said, it is just... You have the worth of women's sports on trial, right? The very worth of whether or not women deserve to be their own category and whether that category is worthy of support and equality and investment and respect. That we're now putting that up to a random judge. <laughs> like, this is, I don't, that's too much chance. Like, how are we doing this? I just, It's so uncomfortable. It's so dangerous. And every single person on the U.S. board, either they knew this was the strategy and blindly went along with it or didn't do anything to stop it or they didn't know, which means they weren't doing their job. They weren't engaged in a very important legal battle. And so I have skepticism of all of this going forward because – I don't really know how U.S. soccer as a whole federation recovers from this because we are not at the beginning of this fight. We are like two months from when it could go to trial, uh, six weeks from when it could go to trial. There's been millions of dollars spent to justify this argument. Like this is not the very beginning and it's honestly too late in my opinion. And what especially drives it home is while the the players show great unity with their protests, if the sponsors had not stepped up, if Visa and Coca-Cola and Volkswagen had not spoken out against this, there's no way Cordero would have resigned. Amira? Yes, certainly. I mean, I think the corporations who have made these statements, this is their corporate branding. They're able to brand as pay equity warriors as long as their product is still on the field. But you see the limits of it because it's not like Volkswagen is saying, hey, we'll pay your salaries while you boycott to actually get equal pay. We'll we'll help you force their hand. 
And so I think one of the things you also have here is a bit of that murkiness, a bit of those limitations or those constraints on the players themselves and what actions they can take and the limits of kind of corporate sponsorship woke branding. And I think that that's something to keep an eye on as we move forward. Yeah. And Brenda, you had a great tweet this week about girls soccer and about how those fees and how it's all part of this U.S. soccer system. Can you share your thoughts on that with us? Yeah, I mean, one of the things to remember is, I mean, there's a couple, these are really interconnected points, but one of them is just all of us who are signing up, any youth soccer or even adult soccer, we pay part of our club fees and those fees go to the U.S. Soccer Federation. So it feels, you know, so one thing is there's athlete activism and and there's also the possibility for a larger community to say no. You know, there's absolutely, what is it for? What is U.S. Soccer Federation for? I mean, school soccer functions just fine without it. And so do we really need to be paying club fees to this organization that basically says, you know, women do not have the capacity to play like men. Is that something like I want to pay into at that level and sign my daughters up for? It's just it, it, it's just one of those things that's really frustrating. I think most people don't realize. And some people pay, you know, four or five different organizations. You pay for tournaments. U.S. Soccer Federation can say, okay, you just get a little cut. It's usually a dollar for a youth player and $2 for an adult player. But if you're signing up, that's millions of kids. And you're signing up for three and four sometimes in one season. It's really striking that we're like sort of paying into an organization that we don't even sometimes realize that we are. And it really went to the question of responsibility. (laughs) I mean, think of the responsibility that this women's team has. We've talked about the labor of being an inspirational athlete all the time. So it's just it's it's just unbelievable to me that that's a responsibility but the fact that the women have inspired the world is not a responsibility it, it was really disheartening for me on many levels and then to just be asked to go right ahead and sign up you know my kids for soccer when I know they're getting a cut is just the height of of hypocrisy on the part of US Soccer Federation All right, I feel like we've already started our burn pile with our U.S. Soccer Federation <laughs> chat, but we're going to have our burn pile anyways. We're going to throw a few things this week uh, that we are frustrated with into the spur- in the sports world onto the burn pile. Let's see, Amir, can you get us started? Oh, I can. <laughs> <laughs> so as we talked about arena workers who were affected by the um, – coronavirus and league shutting down, we mentioned a lot of people who were helping this. I also wanted to burn one organization who's already in flames because it's the Calgary Flames. And they have come out and said that they were not going to pay their employees past their scheduled shifts on March 12th. They said, we will pay you for a March 12th shift if you were scheduled to work. As the notice of cancellation was less than the 24 hours required by Alberta employment standards. However, after that, they were not paying 
anybody any money for lost shifts. One uh, worker at the Flames Arena estimated that he would stand to lose just through the end of the month about two to three thousand dollars as a primary income. What makes this particularly appalling is that taxpayers themselves just in December have agreed or been forced into a subsidy that is providing basically $550 million price tag for the construction of a new arena for the Flames. Of this, $275 million will be provided by the taxpayers, many of whom are employees who now are not getting their shifts paid. Our part-time staff who won't have those financial payments. And the fact that these officials of the people who own the arena are basically bulking at the cost to continue to help these employees make ends meet during this shutdown. They're balking at that on one hand while having the other hand out for a tax subsidy and price tag that is putting the brunt of $275 million on taxpayers who you won't even then support with employment, who you're not helping, who you're not taking care of. You've been, your back has been rubbed, scratch somebody else's back, or I don't know, save a fucking life. I literally, this is the most disgusting type of greed and I just, I'm irritated. I'm be, I don't even know. There's not a word that I have to say what this, how irritated this makes me. Um, it's just not right. So Calgary Flames, particularly the Calgary Sports and Entertainment Corporation who owns the Flames and who's made this decision, you are going on the burn pile. Burn. 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 Yeah, um, on that note, let's also burn the English Premier League, um, who tried to keep the season going for so long, risking any player, any stadium worker, any fan, tried to keep it going through this, this weekend, and we're talking about, you know, March 15th and 16th. They did not cancel until... March 13th, Friday, March 13th. And it took Arsenal coach Arteta, who tested positive, for that to happen. And then um, (laughs) the Chelsea midfielder, Callum Hudson-Odoi, who also tested positive. So two entire squads, both Chelsea and Arsenal, being in isolation for 14 days for them to finally cancel. And I just want to talk just one more point about the hypocrisy of some of these people and these owners. This is the same league that just instituted the financial fair play, right? Like that it's supposed to be about more than money. So obviously it's not. It's a joke that it took that long, that there was a national emergency and that the EPL was like, you know what? That doesn't apply to us. That doesn't apply to like our funding schemes. So I, I want to also, and I guess this is just adding to Amira's, like pile the EPL's greed onto that incinerator and burn it. Burn. 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 
Okay, I'm channeling Shireen. I have three very, very quick ones. <laughs> Spirit of Shireen, who could not be here. First of all, Iona uh, hired Rick Patino. What the burn 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 second of all all the people still going out to bars and restaurants especially those in big cities like new york and dc la despite the fact that we know congregating in groups is the easiest way to spread the coronavirus despite the fact that we know that you can be asymptomatic and still spread it um stop if everyone does what they can now and social isolates as much as possible, we can get sports back sooner. <laughs> like we can move back to normal life sooner. But if everyone keeps being selfish idiots and refusing to give up their brunch dates, then, you know, this is going to drag on for three, four months and it's going to so many more people are going to die. So burn selfishness. And I also want to burn this Washington Post article. <laughs> which I think really just the title will be enough uh, for the burn. This was written on on March 14th. So that was uh, on Saturday. And it says sports cancellations leave one group of fans particularly deflated. Vasectomy patients. (laughs) So... Uh, there is this weird obsession with vasectomy patients every March for March Madness and about how these men schedule it so they can watch more March Madness. And this, I feel like nothing shows you the maleness, the amount of patriarchy wrapped into sports media on all levels, which is that is how many people write this story every March. And the fact that even during the coronavirus, people are still concerned about these patients and this ability. So I just would like to, there's just so many other more important things to be focusing on now. Burn. Burn. All right. After all of that burning, um, it's time to lift up some badasses of the week. First of all, Michaela Schifrin returned to the slopes for the first time since her father's sudden death last month. Uh, She didn't actually get to compete because the event was canceled due to the coronavirus. But she said that just getting back on the slopes was a feat for her and one of the scariest things she's done in her life. We want to shout out the U.S. Women's National Team, who showed the solidarity by protesting U.S. soccer's sexism for the She Believes Cup and then winning the She Believes Cup, as we discussed. Oksana Masters for sharing her candid and heart-wrenching story, which began in an orphanage in the Ukraine and currently has her as a multi-sport and multi-time Paralympic champion. Her story was shared in both the New York Times and the Players' Tribune this week. The Boston Pride and the Minnesota Whitecaps both advanced to the National Women's Hockey League final. The championship game is on pause indefinitely, but we want to shout out both of those teams. We won't have an NCAA champion this year, although South Carolina did finish the season ranked number one. And so shout out to Dawn Staley and her women's basketball powerhouse team. But I did want to give some props to the conference champions since conference tournaments uh, ended last Sunday and sometimes Monday. So South Carolina won the SEC, Maryland won the Big Ten, Oregon won the Pac-12, UConn won the AAC, NC State won ACC, DePaul won the Big East, and South Dakota won the Summit League. So congratulations. I'm sure there's some conferences I missed, (laughs) but congratulations to everyone in women's basketball this season. 
Margaret Mariuki of Kenya, who won the LA Marathon last week. UConn commit Paige Buckers, who won the Gatorade Player of the Year Award. And can I get a drum roll, please? All right. Our badass of the week is Maya Moore, who spent the last year helping overturn Jonathan Iron's conviction. Katie Barnes at ESPN wrote about this monumental decision that was made this week. Um, Katie wrote, the WNBA star put her career on hiatus to help Jonathan get released from prison. And this last Monday, Iron's initial conviction was overturned. This day has been a long time coming, Moore said. We are just so grateful and thankful to God and everybody who has played a role in bringing justice Iron served 22 years of a 50-year sentence that was handed in 1998 following a conviction of burglary and assault with a weapon um, in the suburb. He, there was no DNA to the scene. It was a very wrongful conviction. The fight isn't quite over. There is a stay on the order. So the state has 15 days to request a, view, a review by the appell- appellate court. And then if the state doesn't appeal, St. Charles County has 30 days to decide if it wants to retry Irons. But this is a huge huge victory and just shows the power of Maya Moore (laughs) and activism. And it's, yeah, congratulations. Okay. We've talked about a lot of bad things, but is there anything good in your life? Amira? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm happy for health. I'm, I'm really happy for our, our health right now, my family is well, my parents are well, my siblings. Um, so that is really significant and that is good. On my block, season three hit Netflix just in time for this. I'm very thankful for all of the 90 Day Fiance spinoffs for Sims 4, which is keeping me entertained, and for community. I'm a extrovert with ADHD. I'm already stir crazy. I need to schedule a lot of FaceTime dates um, to deal with social distancing because I get energy and motivation from people. And so I'm just really happy with the people who have agreed to Skype with me and FaceTime and Google Hangout and have writing groups and have writing breaks and figure out how we stay connected in this time. Particularly want to shout out grad students, our grad students who are going through comps, Paulina and Rick. And, you know, and Ellie Jane, who is figuring out (laughs) how to play professional soccer when there's no soccer and is quarantined over in Denmark. And everybody really that I'm connected to in my global village who are navigating this, but turning inward and connecting with each other in the face of this pandemic. And it, it reminds me just how, how blessed we all are to have each other and to navigate it together. And so that's what, to me, is is good. And box wine. <laughs> Bren? Well, I echo Amira's appreciation for health, my family's well, and appreciation for all of my friends and family who are trying to keep me sane. I also want to give a big shout out to public librarians. Um, the, the school being closed, I went to Red Hook Public Library in Dutchess County, New York. They have drive through uh, library stops. They have curbside library going on right now. And it is amazing because we are having to 
do something with our children who are not in school. And it is just a, a tremendous relief to get new stuff in, you know, new ways to learn and new things for them to do. So I really appreciate the work that they're doing in the public libraries. And I know it's not just mine. I know it's around the country. I've seen it on social media. And um, I also want to say that I'm here in Detroit to meet my miracle baby nephew. My sister is a quadriplegic and gave birth to Bennett in December. And I have not been able to get out here because of crazy scheduling. And um, I'm not happy about the coronavirus. Obviously worried about everyone, but this reprieve from everything gave me the opportunity to dash out here. And I already changed a diaper within 20 minutes of arriving and I'm just in love. So I'm really, really grateful. That's amazing. <laughs> That's the best. I too, I had a week that was all about you know, personally, kind of the circle of life. So I got the call last Friday night that my grandfather wasn't doing well and that I, you know, it was time probably to come say goodbye. So I very quickly drove down to North Carolina and I found out that my cousin, so this was the other side of the family. So I was kind of the only connective tissue here. Uh, but my cousin on the other side of the family, his wife was in labor and I hadn't realized that the hospital, the women's hospital, had moved to be at the main hospital where I was going to visit my grandfather. It used to be in another part of the, the town. And it had just moved last week. And anyways, this hospital was huge, but I ended up being directed to go in this one door by my dad. He like gave me a shortcut. And when I walked in after driving for, you know, six hours down to, and I walked in to go say goodbye to my grandfather, there was um, my cousin's wife's family right there in the lobby when the, I walked in the door to tell me that she had just given birth. So that was just such a cool moment. And it was, I mean, just what the circle of life. So I'm like, so excited for my new little cousin, Elowen, and um, my grandfather, uh, Alan Roger Gibbs, we called him all, we all called him Roger, uh, was just the greatest man. And it was, I was so, it was so special to be able to be with family because, you know, there are times when you can't be with family during, you know, funerals and um, to say goodbye. And as hard as the week was, I was so glad to be there. And the funeral was just amazing. So he was a great singer. And we actually like played a clip of him singing at his own funeral. So that was just like so special. And yeah, it was a very emotional week, a very hard week, but it was a very good week, all things considered. All right. Thank you all so much for listening to Burn It All Down. We are going to keep this sports podcast going, even as we have no clue <laughs> when sports are going to be back. But I think we'll have plenty, plenty to talk about. Um, we, You can keep up with us at our website, burnitalldownpod.com, Twitter, Burn It Down Pod, on Facebook at Burn It All Down, and also on Apple Podcast, Burn It All Down Podcast. Please rate and review and help us reach some new people. People are going to need some new listening material to kill time during this uh, while they're indoors. Help them find this feminist sports podcast you need. It was actually an exciting week for us. We got shared by Apple Podcasts, the main account, which has like 600,000 followers. And Megan Rapino shared our episode with Rachel Rapino, uh, her sister, last week. So first of all, go back and listen to that interview if you haven't yet. And it's fun to continue to grow. 
even almost three years into this deal. We hope, please wash your hands, be as safe as you can, you know, just please, please be safe and healthy, take care of yourself, but also remember that you need to take care of others too, and that you can do that by staying home. And we just appreciate you all so much. We'll be back next week. Man, I'm sorry.